Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode four of The Last Crusades and the title of this episode is The Triumph of the Ottoman Turks. In the last episode, we heard about the rise to power of the Ottoman Turks from obscure origins as one of many Turkish tribes in Anatolia to being a peculiarly vibrant Turkish state that was unusual because it had crossed the Bosphorus and established itself in Europe as much as in Western Anatolia. This marked a radical new departure for the Turks, who had hitherto mainly been confined to central and eastern Anatolia and were prevented from invading Europe by the Byzantine Empire. But what had happened to Byzantium during the 200 years of Crusader rule in the Levant? Well, as you know, Byzantium had been getting weaker and weaker. In my opinion, it never recovered from the destruction of its professional army at the Battle of Man in 1071, but the First Crusade gave it a new lease of life when the Crusaders defeated the Seljuk Turks and allowed the Byzantines to recover most of western Anatolia, including the big fortified cities like Nicaea and Smyrna, as discussed in the early episodes of the podcast. But Byzantium was in reality still the sick man of Europe, so to speak. The Turks inflicted another major defeat on the Byzantines at the Battle of Miriocephal in 1176, and then came the horrific and misguided attack on Constantinople itself by the Fourth Crusade in 1204. The remarkable thing was really that a form of Byzantine state survived at all, and even more remarkably, it recovered Constantinople from the Crusaders in 1261. But it then had to confront the rise of the Ottoman Turks, and of course the Byzantines were no match for them. So the result was that the Pope called for another crusade, this time to fight the Ottoman Turks. And in the last episode, we heard how in 1396, a really huge army of Hungarians, French, Burgundians, Germans and other nationalities advanced against the Ottomans. And we'll rejoin this story in this episode as the two armies are about to fight the Great Battle of Nicopolis, which would prove to be very decisive in European history. But just very quickly before we do that, let me mention that if you're interested in the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, which I regard as a great turning point in history, the 950th anniversary of the battle actually took place last week on August the 26th. There wasn't very much coverage in the Western press about it, but in Turkey there's always a huge celebration with reenactment of the battle staged in modern Malazgirt and attended normally by hundreds of thousands of people, although I think this year COVID meant it was a lot smaller. President Erdogan of Turkey is also a huge fan of the battle and always attends these events. And I also just mentioned my own book on the Battle of Antikert called The Byzantine World War is on special offer at the moment on Amazon at a price of 99 cents or 99 pence. So why not take a look? But let's get back to the Battle of Nicopolis in 1396. And as before, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. (laughs) 
In the year 1396, the great army of crusaders advanced on Nicopolis. This was the chief Turkish stronghold on the Danube, situated where the main road from central Bulgaria came to the river. It was built beside the river on a hill whose steep slopes were crowned with two lines of formidable walls. The crusaders had come without machines for siege warfare. The westerners had not realised the need for them and the Hungarian king Sigismund had prepared only for defensive action. When the ladders hastily put in place by the French and the mines dug by Hungarian engineers proved quite inadequate, the army sat down to starve the city into surrender. In this, they were aided by the arrival of the Hospitaller fleet, which sailed up the Danube and anchored off the walls on the 10th of September. But Nicopolis was well stocked with provisions and the Turkish governor, Dogan Bey, who had learned of the fate of his compatriots at Vidin and Rehova had no intention of surrendering. The delay was fatal to the morale of the Christian army. The Western knights amused themselves in gambling and drinking in all forms of debauchery. The few soldiers who dared to suggest that the Turks were formidable foes had their ears cut off by order of Marshal Busico as a punishment for defeatism. There were quarrels between the various contingents, while Sigismund's Transylvanian vassals and Wallachian allies began to talk of desertion. When the crusade had passed a fortnight outside the walls of Nicopolis, news came that the Turks were approaching. The Sultan's army had moved quickly up from Thrace. It was lightly armed. Its cavalry was far more mobile than the crusaders. Its archers were superbly trained, and it had the profound advantage of perfect discipline and obedience to the sole command of the Sultan, who was himself a man of exceptional ability. He had sent some troops ahead, which were defeated in one of the Balkan passes by a French contingent led by the Lord of Cousy. But the jealousy of Marshal Boussico, who accused Cousy of trying to steal from John of Nevers the honours of victory, prevented any further attempts to stem the Turkish advance. Meanwhile, the knights decided to kill the captives taken at Rehova. On Monday the 25th of September 1396, the vanguard of the Turkish army came into sight and camped in the hills some three miles from the Crusaders. Next morning before sunrise, King Sigismund visited all his fellow commanders and begged them to remain on the defensive, though he told them frankly that he could not trust his Transylvanians and Wallachians. Only Cousy and John of Vienne supported him. The other leaders were determined to force a battle at once. Sigismund weakly gave way. He drew up his own army in three divisions, with his own Hungarian troops in the centre, the Wallachians on the left and the Transylvanians on the right. The vanguard was composed of all the Westerners under John of Nevers. When morning broke, all that could be seen of the Turkish army was a division of light, irregular cavalry, just over the slope of the hill. Behind it, protected by a line of stakes, was the Turkish infantry with the regiment of archers. The main body of the Sipahi cavalry, commanded by the Sultan in person, lay hidden behind the crest of the hill. A division of Serbian cavalry under the Prince Stephen Lazarovich 
a loyal vassal of the Sultan's, was on his left. The battle, like the preceding strategy, showed that the Crusaders had learnt nothing in all the centuries. The Western knights in the vanguard did not wait until Sigismund told them of their plans. In high, confident enthusiasm, they charged up the hill, scattering the light Turkish horsemen before them. But while the Turks regrouped behind their own infantry, the knights found themselves held up by the stakes. At once, they dismounted and continued the charge on foot, pulling out the stakes as they advanced. Such was their impetus that the Turkish infantry was also scattered. Some of the Turks were able to retire behind the regrouped cavalry, but many more were killed or driven down into the plain. But when the Crusaders, triumphant but exhausted, hastened on and reached the hilltop, they found themselves face to face with the Sultan Sipahi cavalry and the Serbs. The attack of these fresh troops took them by surprise. On foot, tired and thirsty and weighed down by their heavy armour, they were soon flung into disorder and their victory was turned into a rout. Few of the knights survived the slaughter. Amongst those that perished, there were William of La Tremouille and his son, Philip John of Cudzo, Admiral of Flanders, and the Grand Prior of the Teutonic Knights. Meanwhile, when the knights had dismounted, their horses had rushed riderless back to the Crusader camp. The Wallachian and Transylvanian contingents at once decided that the battle was lost and hastened to retreat, seizing all the boats that they could find in order to cross the river. But King Sigismund ordered his troops to advance to the rescue of the Westerners. They slew many of the disordered Turkish infantry as they moved up the hill, but when they approached the battlefield, they found that they were too late. The Ottoman Sultan's cavalry charged down on them and drove them back with heavy losses right to the banks of the river. When his army was scattered, King Sigismund himself was persuaded to abandon the fight. He took refuge on one of the Venetian ships in the river, which carried him to Constantinople and on home through the Aegean and the Adriatic. He feared to journey by land as he suspected treachery from the Wallachians. His soldiers, together with the few survivors of the Western Crusaders, made their way to their own countries as best they could, harassed by hostile natives and wild beasts and the of an early winter. The Count Palatine reached his father's castle in rags and died a few days later. Few of his fellow refugees were more fortunate. The Ottoman Sultan Bayezid had won a great victory at Nicopolis, but his losses had been very heavy. In his rage, remembering also the massacres committed by the Crusaders, he ordered his prisoners to the number of 3,000 to be killed in cold blood only sparing the few noblemen for whom a high ransom could be charged. A French knight, James of Ely, who spoke Turkish, was made to identify them and then was allowed to travel to the West to arrange for the money to be raised. It was not until the following June that a Western embassy reached the Sultan at Brusa and handed over to him the vast sums that he demanded. Many sympathisers throughout Christendom sent contributions, but the greater part was paid for by King Sigismund and by the Duke of Burgundy, who provided more than a million francs. The released Crusader captives reached their homes towards the end of 1397.
The Crusade of Nicopolis was the largest and the last of the great international crusades. The pattern of its history followed with melancholy accuracy that of the great disastrous crusades of the past, with the difference that the battlefield was now in Europe and not in Asia. The faults and mistakes had been the same. The same enthusiasm had been dissipated in quarrels, jealousy and impatience. All that the West learned from this final failure was that the Holy War was dead. There would be no more crusades. But the Turks remained threatening the heart of Christendom. They had reached the Danube and the shores of the Adriatic Sea. Constantinople was Christian still, but isolated, only spared because the Ottoman Sultan had not yet artillery strong enough to batter its massive walls, nor sufficient ships to interrupt its communications by sea. The Knights Hospitaller at Rhodes and the Italian lords of the Aegean archipelago found themselves on a frontier and Cyprus was a distant outpost. The king of Hungary, the leaders of Wallachia and Moldavia and the chieftains of Albania sought help to defend their borders. The Italian republics were kept busy calculating what policy would best preserve their commercial interests. The Pope was deeply conscious of the threat to Christendom. But the powers of the West were no longer interested. Their last experience had been too bitter and the enthusiasm that prompted it could not be revived after such a disaster. Meanwhile, the Byzantine Emperor Manuel II journeyed hopefully to the West to seek help. The Italians were shocked to see how poor the Byzantines had become. The Duke of Milan gave him splendid gifts that his state might be more suited to his rank. He was magnificently received at Paris and at London, but no material help was offered. The papacy was uninterested, for Manuel was too honest to promise the submission of the Byzantine Church to to Rome, knowing that his people would not accept it. But in 1402, he hurried back to his capital, cheered by news that seemed to portend the possible destruction of the Ottoman Empire. This was due to Timur the Lame, who was born a petty prince of Turco-Mongol descent near Samarkand in 1336. By 1369, he was the ruler of all the lands that had belonged to the Jagatai branch of the Mongols. Thenceforward, he extended his dominion by ruthless warfare, slowly at first, then with with increasing momentum. From 1381 to 1386, he overran the lands of the Mongol Ilkhanate in Persia, and in 1386 conquered Tabriz and Tiflis. For the next four years, he was busy on his northern frontier in 1392. He captured Baghdad itself. During the next years, he campaigned in Russia against the Mongols of the Golden Horde, penetrating as far as Moscow, and in 1395 he appeared in eastern Anatolia, where Ezinjan and Sivas fell to him. In 1398, he conquered northern India in a brilliant campaign made more effective by ghastly massacres. In 1400, he turned westward again and swept into Syria, defeating the Mameluk armies sent against him first at Aleppo, then at Damascus, and occupying and sacking all the great cities of the province. In 1401, he punished a revolt in Baghdad by the total destruction of the city, which was only just just recovering from the effects of Hulagu's conquest a century and a half.
half before. In 1402, he returned to Anatolia, determined to conquer the Ottoman Sultan, who was the only power left in Islam that he had not humiliated. The decisive battle took place at Ankara on the 20th of July. The Ottoman Sultan Bayezid was utterly defeated and taken prisoner and died in captivity a few months later. Meanwhile, the Ottoman cities of Anatolia fell to the Mongols, who in December 1402 drove the knights of the hospital out of Smyrna. The Byzantine Emperor Manuel had hoped that the disaster to Bayezid might end the Ottoman Empire, but he was not strong enough to take action without support. The Italian republics were cautious. The Genoese hastened to make a treaty with Timur to preserve their Asiatic trade, but fearing for their Balkan trade and uncertain of the future, they helped to preserve Ottoman power by ferrying the remnants of Bayezid's army across to Europe. The Venetians held aloof their caution was justified. Timur's invasion had in fact prevented an immediate attack on Constantinople by the Ottoman Sultan, and it preserved Byzantium for another half century. Had all Europe at once intervened, it might have ended the Ottoman Empire, but the Turks were too well established racially in Anatolia and politically in the Balkans to be easily dislodged, nor had Timur the political genius of Genghis Khan. On his death in 1405, his empire began at once to disintegrate. The Mamluks quickly recovered Syria. In Azerbaijan, the dynasty of the black sheep Turkomans arose and established a dominion from eastern Anatolia to Baghdad. There were nationalist stirrings in Persia, where soon the great Safawi dynasty appeared. In Transoxiana, Timur's descendants lasted for nearly a century, but it was only in India that they founded an enduring empire as the great moguls of Delhi. In Anatolia, the only ultimate effect of Timur's invasion was to introduce a new influx of Turks and Turkomans, and thus eventually to strengthen the roots of Ottoman power. When Timur died, the sons of Bayezid took over their father's inheritance. For six years, they fought between themselves. The civil wars offered the Christian powers another chance of checking the further growth of Ottoman power, but it was not taken. The Byzantine emperor won back by his diplomacy a few coastal cities and the knights of Rhodes were allowed to build a castle on the mainland opposite their island at Bodrum, the ancient Halicarnassus. But nothing else was gained when in 1413 Mohammed I became sole sultan, the Ottoman Empire was intact. Mohammed was a peaceful ruler who avoided aggressive wars but firmly reorganised his dominions. On his death in 1421, the Ottomans were stronger than before. Mohammed's successor, Murad II, began his reign with an attempt on Constantinople, but he still lacked heavy artillery and ships, and after the Byzantines had bravely defended their capital without outside help, from June to August 1422, 
he abandoned the siege and concentrated his attention on conquests in the Greek peninsula in Asia and across the Danube. In 1439, the Byzantine Emperor John VIII, Manuel's successor, agreed in desperation at the Council of Florence to submit the Byzantine Church to Rome. His people repudiated the Union and he received little for his pains. In 1440, Pope Eugenius IV preached a new crusade, but nothing happened. In 1444, the Ottomans defeated a Hungarian and Polish army at the Battle of Varna. In 1448, they defeated the Hungarians again at the Second Battle of Kosovo. The Ottoman Turks were now the dominant power in Eastern Europe, and next they looked to achieve what no other Muslim power had ever succeeded in doing, to conquer the oldest and greatest Christian city in the world, the great city of Constantinople. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we're going to start a major new sub-series, which is called The Fall of Constantinople. And I'm going to narrate the full story of one of the greatest sieges in history, which resulted in the death of Byzantium and really the coming of age of the Ottoman Turks as a world superpower. It's an extraordinarily exciting story. And I'll read from my adaptive version version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant book on the subject, just as I've been using his great work on the Crusades. Hope to see you then. <laughs>